from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. Today, we are going to talk about race. This is a subject that white people don't want to talk about. White America wants to say that we are post-racial, that racism is a thing of the past, and that we should be colorblind. But that is rhetoric. It isn't true. We are raced in America. We've been for a long time since the Puritans arrived, and we continue to be raced. This racism has led to continued violence against black bodies, to the arrest of black bodies, to the incarceration of black bodies, to the murder of black bodies. Laws such as Stand Your Ground are racist laws designed to protect whiteness. If we are going to be honest in our country and if we are going to move to anything resembling justice for all people, black and white, we are going to have to admit that we are living in a racist culture that is racist to its core. As William Faulkner wrote in Requiem for a Nun, the past is never dead. It's not even past. To help us talk about what America needs to talk about is my guest, Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas. Dr. Douglas is an Episcopal priest and a professor at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Her areas of expertise are womanist theology and sexuality in the black church. Her books include The Black Christ, Sexuality in the Black Church, and The Black Body and the Black Church, A Blues Slant. She's with me today via Skype from Baltimore to talk about her latest book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. Welcome, Professor Douglas, to Religion for Life. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, tell us about this book, uh, Stand Your Ground. How did it come to be? Well, as you know, in 2012, we had the murder of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. And that murder struck a particular chord within me uh, because, one, I simply could not understand what precisely happened that would lead to the death of this young man. And also the fact that at initially it seemed not to get a lot of attention. And of course, the uh, African-American community in particular began to protest that the person who killed Trayvon should at least be arrested. Uh, what really struck a nerve within me, I think, was as I looked at Trayvon, I thought of my own son. And I could indeed see my son as Trayvon. And so it frightened me even more than other murders of that type had, and perhaps because of my son. Then after Trayvon, uh, of course, as if that wasn't bad enough, we had Jordan Davis in Jacksonville, Florida. We had Renisha McBride. We had Jonathan Farrell, and the list can go on. And so by this time, as I've said in my book, I became practically unnerved and began to think that I needed to understand what was going on and why this was continuing and why so many people did not seem to understand that there was a grave injustice going on and there was a problem and could not even understand that perhaps uh, these persons who had killed these young children were indeed guilty of something as opposed to the young people themselves. Uh, if I can go on for just one minute, John. Yes. The other thing that struck me, particularly in the Trayvon uh, Martin case, was that Trayvon seemed to be the one placed on trial. And I remember how his character was so greatly maligned. And so this also uh, distressed me. And I wanted to just 
dig into this more deeply and to understand. And uh, after his killer was exonerated, I truly uh, said that I have to say something. There must be something that can be said to try to understand what's going on in this country. You write, uh, parents of black male children know that the world poses a much greater danger to our sons than they do to the world. Um, can you talk more about that feeling, what you see and, and what you know about being a mother of a black male child? Oh, yes. Uh, from the moment, really, that my son came into the world, I truly understood uh, that the way the world saw him would not be the way that I saw him, and that as he grew older, people would begin to see him as a threat. Uh, and in fact, as I talk about in my book, as early as two years old, when he was playing in the park one day, a young little white child, a little boy, maybe about seven or eight years old, uh, looked at my son because my son was watching uh, as a two-year-old will do, as the little boy and his friend seemed to be in a tussle. And so my son was looking on with the curiosity of a two-year-old, and the little seven- or eight-year-old uh, blonde-haired boy pointed his finger in my son's face and said, uh, stop looking at us before I throw you in jail where you belong. And it struck me then that, oh my goodness, that all of my fears in terms of the way my son would be perceived uh, would come to fruition. Here it is, a seven-year-old that already has this image of a dangerous, threatening uh, black male. And so uh, you teach your child, you try to teach your child, or I try to teach my son, of course, to be confident and to affirm himself and not to see himself or live into the image uh, of others. At the same time, I also have to teach him to be cautious and to be aware at all times of where he is and uh, who he's around. You talk about the stand your ground law is is really about, uh, not about the law so much, but about the culture that produced the law. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, that's right. As I began to research this book, I initially thought that it would indeed lead me back to the legacy of slavery. But I discovered that the stand your ground culture goes even much further than that, and that it is very much embedded in the identity of uh, this country and in this notion in this country, not simply of American exceptionalism, but this notion of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism for the whole notion of what it means to be this nation uh, that's the city on the hill under God goes back to this ideal of the Anglo-Saxon myth uh, that really, John, can be traced back to, as I've suggested, the ancient woods of Germany uh, by a philosopher named Tacitus, who began to talk about these Anglo-Saxons as people with a great sense of virtue and morality and sense of justice. And so what we see is that, in fact, over time, various peoples wanted to be associated with these Anglo-Saxons and claim to be the ancestors of these Anglo-Saxons. And so uh, the 
such as the case with the Pilgrims and the Puritans who found their way to America and the founding of America, and they really believed that they were indeed the Anglo-Saxon remnant and that they were indeed building a perfect Anglo-Saxon nation. And that's what exceptionalism meant. They were going to build a nation reflective of the virtues and the institutions that were Anglo-Saxon. We see this same thread of thought running through our founding fathers from Thomas Jefferson to Ben Franklin, and they indeed make statements of this nature. What soon happens and how what occurs is that this sort of notion of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism uh, morphs or develops into this notion of sort of cherished whiteness or this ideology of white superiority and white supremacy. And so what we discover is a culture emerging that intends to protect the virtues, the rights of white bodies uh, at the expense of non-white bodies. And this is a stand-your-ground culture, in essence, whiteness standing its ground. And it's the culture that will produce slavery. It's the culture that produced Jim Crow laws, black codes, uh, and white backlash anytime we see uh, non-white bodies beginning to encroach upon some of the rights or property that have, be de have been deemed wages of whiteness. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Kelly Brown Douglas. She's the author of Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies, and the Justice of God. Uh, you mentioned the Founding Fathers. I was reading your book and, and just amazed. Ben Franklin saying things like, it's important to increase the number of white people, right. or that morality of, of white people or Anglo-Saxons was in the blood that there's something innate uh, uh, about uh, the goodness of whiteness. Um, even, even washed as white as snow, uh, that whiteness is, is closer to God in some way. Um, and and I, I often wonder if that's what I hear in the critiques of, uh, of Obama. Uh, you know, I was, I, that some, we need a president who loves America. And I never knew what that meant. And I read your book and I thought, well, that's what it's talking about, isn't it? He's talking about um, whiteness, about uh, that somehow being black in the White House is uh, going against this very myth of, of uh, Anglo-Saxon superiority or whatever. Well, I think you are precisely right. Uh, that one of the things that we see is that, of course, President Obama has encroached upon a space as a black man that was not intended uh, for uh, non-white bodies to be a part of. And of course, that's the White House. And so I think I really do believe that it is no accident that we see this narrative of uh, racism and race hate as we have seen emerge within this country over the last several years. I think it is no accident that this narrative has emerged in a most visceral manner uh, in relationship or in response to President Obama's presence in the White House. Historically, we can see that at any time in our history when indeed black people have enjoyed a more significant sense of freedom, this would occur after emancipation, during Reconstruction, during the Civil Rights Movement, we have had what has been termed uh, a white backlash. We have had this narrative emerge in a most vicious way that indeed tries again to protect 
the white space and thus to move the black body back to where it is intended to be. And in this country, the black body was introduced as a chattel body, not meant ever to be a part of a free space. That was deemed a white space. So I think, in fact, that you were correct in suggesting, as I uh, state in the book in some ways, that President Obama's presence in the White House has triggered this kind of backlash that brings us back to these moments that have, uh, for many people, been quite disturbing and can't understand why is it that we are still fighting uh, this battle of racial justice. But I think there's a history of it, and that's what I've tried to understand and put into context in my book. And the um, the idea of this stand your ground culture just changes over time. It, it you know it wasn't obvious uh, in in some of the ways and the phrases and the things that we do. But uh, but the prison system, for example, um, right. is, is is an example really of uh, of slavery by another name. That's exactly right. And uh, there are several other people who have suggested this. Most notably, of course, uh, Michelle Alexander. Uh, who calls the prison industrial complex the new Jim Crow. And what I try to do is extend uh, that analogy and really suggest that the prison industrial complex is the modern day slavocracy. Because what it does is it places the black body where it was intended to be, particularly the black male body. And that is, again, in an unfree space. It's telling that... uh, as more black males are enslaved today, or in prison today, and one can say in modern day slavery, but are in prison today, then were indeed uh, enslaved in 1850. Is that right? So that's that's amazing to me. And so that. Um and, and that's happened throughout, uh, throughout, for example, the 20th century uh, in terms of the various laws that you talked about, vagrancy laws and whatnot. It continued to design to keep um, black bodies um, uh, not free. Yes, this whole notion of driving while black. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, of course, we hear that all the time now. And in, indeed, we begin to see evidence of it. Uh, numerous uh, black persons, male and female, who are arrested for traffic violations that perhaps uh, would not warrant attention if they weren't black bodies. But uh, this notion, however, of driving while black really is just a transformation of other notions throughout history of living while black. We know that right after Reconstruction, there were a number of vagrancy laws uh, put in place that were indeed uh, designed really just to criminalize black life and black living. For instance, that uh, if you didn't have a job, a job in which you could really earn a living, uh, or if you didn't have a stable place to live, then you were either put uh, back into sort of a work penal system, uh, or you were put placed in jail. Now, the question becomes, right after enslavement, what black persons uh, had a stable job uh, and a wage-earning job where they could really earn a living. And so, as W.E.B. Du Bois said in his great essay on uh, Black Reconstruction, uh, that you were really criminalizing Black living. And so we have living while Black. And so this driving while Black is just a transformation uh, of what has been going on. And again, it's symptomatic of this stand-your-ground culture. 
Well, let's talk about uh, some of the the laws uh, that you mentioned that are current today that uh, repeat this culture. Stop and frisk, mandatory drug sentencing, conceal and carry, uh, and the standard ground law itself, you write, must be brought to an end. They're a violation of the sacredness of God's creation. Can you talk more about that? Uh, yes. These laws, and what we have seen across time, of course, is that these laws uh, are applied at least in a discriminatory manner. Uh, there's been plenty of evidence, of course, that the drug laws were intended to ensnare uh, persons in the black community. And so, of course, we now see the DOJ, the Ju- Department of Justice, trying to walk these laws back in some degree and trying to, of course, uh, become more equitable in terms of the prison sentencing. And so you see President Obama trying to do something about that. Uh, But these are indeed, these laws do not take into account at all, and particularly the way in which they're applied, that every single person that lives and breathes and has their being on this earth is a child of God. And what we find in a stand-your-ground culture is that a religious narrative has developed and throughout history has developed uh, in sometimes in even more crass ways that has suggested that the black body and the black people were indeed not sacred beings and that they were indeed not created in the image of God. And we know from time to time there have been suggestions that black people were created indeed to be slaves, that black people were created amongst the beastly creation. And so what we have to affirm is that everybody that lives and breathes and has their being on this earth is a child of God, is sacred, and ought to be treated as such. And what we see in a stand-your-ground culture is that uh, black people have not been given the benefit of the sacred doubt, let alone the benefit of the human doubt. And today, so much of the rhetoric is that, oh, we need to move beyond color. We need to uh, stop thinking of black and white. And and what we're doing is really... uh, basically lying. (laughs) We're covering over uh, this tradition that is still very much alive today. That's right. We certainly do not live in a post-racial society. Mm -hmm. And to suggest uh, that we do is indeed to ignore the problem and to actually affirm the status quo. And it is to negate the reality of black people's lives because to be black in this country is to know that we don't live in a post-racial or post-racist society. And in your daily life, you are constantly navigating your way through the kind of microaggressions of what it means to be black in this country and always constantly aware of who you are and aware of the fact that you're raced. And one of the things that has to occur is that white people also have to develop this kind of race consciousness. Mm -hmm. They have to develop the understanding that they too are raced and what it means to be raced as white, what it means to live in a white body, which means that one has certain privileges to move freely uh, through certain spaces and through the country without having to worry, for the most part, that if you're stopped for a traffic violation, you might end up dead. Uh, And so there are certain privileges and certain uh, things that white people don't have to think about. They can go about their daily living as simply people. But until they began to develop this consciousness of race and the fact that they are raced as well, but they are 
their race means that they are privileged, uh, then I really believe that we are not going to begin to move beyond where we are today. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Kelly Brown Douglas. She's the author of Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies, and the Justice of God. The second half of your book talks about the justice of God, uh, the black faith tradition. Um, and you write, the, blacks, the black faith tradition of the enslaved provided a counter-narrative to the grand narrative of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. Talk a little bit about that faith, will you? Uh, yes. The black faith tradition, ironically, was, has always been sort of a paradoxical tradition because black faith emerged even as black people, of course, were still enslaved. And yet, in spite of that, they black people were able to affirm that they were not created to be enslaved, that they were sacred, and most significantly, they were able to affirm the very justice of God. And so they didn't believe in the God of their slaveholders, and their slaveholders would tell them that God meant for them to be slaves and that they were to be good little slaves. They didn't believe in that God. Somehow, as it is often said in church testimony, the rocks cried out, and somehow the black uh, enslaved began came in contact with the God of the Exodus. They came in contact with the God of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And so they understood, well, my goodness, if that God could free the Israelites from their enslavement, then that very God is working in history to free us. And as they encountered the uh, God of the Jesus on the cross and the Jesus that was born in the manger, and in fact, they sung a song, poor little Jesus boy born in a manger world, treat him so mean, treat me so mean too. They understood that that God understands what it means to be to suffer. And indeed, that God understands what it means to undergo unjust suffering. So black faith emerged with this radical sense and this deep, profound sense of the justice of God and a God that was on the side and understood intimately uh, the plight uh, and the struggle of the oppressed. And that's the core of the black faith tradition, sort of the, the Jesus that died on the lynching tree, as James Cone has said. That, 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 the God of that Jesus is the center of black faith. And, uh, and today, uh, you say that the guns of Stand Your Ground culture are today's crosses. That's indeed right. Uh, what we see, just as we see these transformations of stand your ground culture, transformations of what it means for the black body to be chattel, we see these transformations of the lynching tree. Again, so while we may not lynch uh, black bodies so much today, uh, what has taken the place of lynching are guns. And so now you have, while lynching used to be a sort of extra uh, legal way of uh, attacking the black body. We have now almost legalized it uh, in terms of the stand your ground law that allows people to shoot to kill. Uh, that stand your ground law used to be called a shoot first law. And the frightening thing about that law is it says that if you feel threatened. And so what we discover is that deeply embedded within the consciousness, the collective consciousness, particularly of white America, is this sense of threat when it comes across the black body. And so we now have almost a license uh, to kill uh, young black bodies. And so and that's why I suggest that the gun has now replaced the lynching tree. 
I was thinking, now, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, the relationship with the police. Um, I'm thinking whiteness as cherished property. Is, are this, is the job of the police in this country under this myth to protect white property, and that's why we see uh, some of these shootings against unarmed black men and women? Well, I think there are a couple of things uh, going on. First of all, we have to understand that uh, police officers uh, are too a part of this country, a part of this sort of ethos of uh, white exceptionalism, of, of uh, this notion uh, of privileged whiteness, et cetera. And so none of us actually can escape uh, being uh, in many ways socialized into these myths of blackness and these myths of whiteness. So we can't remove individual police officers from, they, they aren't growing up in a post-racial vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so first of all, we have to understand that. And so we have human beings that are out there serving as police officers. And so just as you have a variety of people in our society, you have that on the police force. And so we can expect these kind of encounters from time to time. But the, the other thing that we have to understand is we're talking about systemic uh, racial injustice. And what we've seen are laws and systems that are racially discriminatory. This is the thing that was unearthed, of course, at Ferguson, which, by the way, again, the black citizens of Ferguson knew all along. And they were saying, you know, things are happening here to black people that are unfair. And so the DOJ comes in and discovers that those that the black citizens uh, were right. And so we have systemic racial injustice. And so this all comes together uh, when we talk about policing in this country. Uh, because policemen, first of all, are enforcing laws that are unfair. They are also human beings. And so you have uh, white police officers encountering black bodies. And not all of those police officers, of course, are going in with uh, wrong intent. But you have some that are. Uh, and when you couple that with already systems that are designed and laws that are designed uh, in such a way that they are racially unjust, well, we have the kind of explosive situations that we have had and deadly situations that we have had over these last several years. Kelly Brown Douglas, author of Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. Uh, Professor Douglas, I just have about time for one more question. You write, uh, this is a kairos time. Uh, this is an opportunity. What is that opportunity for America, and how can we take advantage of it? Oh, yes. I think, you know, we have all of this uh, crisis, chaos, disruption, and kairos uh, theologically, when we speak of Kairos, we speak of a time of crisis, a time of chaos, a time of disruption when God is fully present, trying to call us to a new way of being in relationship to one another, uh, in relationship to our own histories, and most significantly, in relationship to God. Again, in order for that to happen, we've got things have to be disrupted. The status quo has to be disrupted. And so I think that that's the moment we're living in. Theologically, my faith suggests that this is a Kairos moment and that we can miss the Kairos or we can step back and do the kind of soul searching that is necessary to see how not simply do we get beyond this moment, but how we create a better society. How do we move closer 
to a post-racial society. And the first step to that is to begin to really acknowledge that something is terribly wrong and to really acknowledge that indeed we are nowhere near a post-racial society and to take seriously, as President Obama has stated on many occasions, most recently uh, for the eulogy for uh, Reverend Pinckney, that we have to take seriously the legacy of slavery. Uh, and that we still live in that legacy. And though slavery itself may nominally be over, we still live and are a part of a culture that produced it. And so we have to just get honest in this country. And so at the same time that we have to change laws and uh, systems and structures that are racially discriminatory, we also have to do the work on the ground through our churches, through our schools, to begin to have these tough conversations about what it means to live in a racialized society. Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas has been my guest on Religion for Life with a most important book, uh, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. Uh, Dr. Douglas, thank you so much for being with me and for writing this book. Well, thank you so much for having me and for uh, making uh, your listeners aware of this book. I only hope to contribute in some small way to the conversation. For more information about this program, including links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well. Be well.